joy to be here. And I'm really, really, really happy to see you all be here in this place with you. We're embodying something together. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Hosan. Thank you. Thank you, Tia. It's I see the light. <laughs> you all just look like bodhisattvas to me. So uh, we're going to talk about the sustainable development goals, but before that, I just want to put it in the context of our totally interconnected life together, because that's really what it's all about, and taking care of this great earth and all the human beings and creatures is part of our interconnected life together. And this is fundamental teaching of our, of our way, fundamental principle of, of uh, the Buddha, and also one of Dogen's main emphases. And so one of the ways that Dogen described this interconnectedness was this really beautiful way. He called it uh, Dharma blossoms turn Dharma blossoms. And there's a, a fascicle that he wrote called that, Hokke Ten Hokke, Dharma Blossoms Turn Dharma Blossoms. And in this world system, if you imagine looking at our world or looking at this place as a flower turning, we're turning and we're also being turned. And all the other world systems and all the other places are Dharma flowers that are turning with us, like a whole range of pedaled gears coming together and turning. So this beautiful image is rooted in the image of the Buddha with his great assembly. There's the great assembly. And the Buddha raised a flower and twirled the flower. So this, it's not just the flower, it's the twirling of the action of teaching. And for me, this image is so powerful because it is a, it's a, a description of the dynamo of our practice. Our practice is not static, it's dynamic. And we're both turning and being turned. And in the fascicle that Dogen wrote, he elaborated on a teaching of the sixth ancestor, Sao Chi, um, especially the part about Nothing is hidden in the entire world. Nothing is hidden. Nothing can be hidden. Reality is always showing itself to us completely. Everything we see is reality trying to show itself to us in a way that's dynamic and turning. And uh, Sao Chi, or the sixth ancestor of Wei Neng, um, you guys probably know some of these things, and I will say it anyway. Sao Chi, Hui Neng, um, his name, South Creek or South Mountain, some people say, is the So of Soto Zen. So the To is, is Dongshan, Tozan, but the So comes from Sao Chi, the sixth ancestor. And it's always, for me, it's always interesting. Some ancestors lose their name and just become the name of the place. But the sixth ancestor, for some reason, we always call him the sixth ancestor, but his place was, was Sao Chi. So he doesn't really, he's, we, get, we give him his real name, Hui Nong. We give him his place in the lineage, Sixth Ancestor. And then secretly he's also Sao Chi, So Tozen. So he was sitting on his mountain after coming out of hiding. And because uh, of course Buddhism was under threat at that time in China and was being repressed here and there. So he had to go into hiding for many years. And then he was teaching on his mountain and a monk came and said, very earnestly, I've been reciting the Lotus Sutra, which is the sutra of the turning of the Dharma wheel, the turning of the Dharma blossom. And he said, I've been reciting it 3,000 times. I've memorized it. I've recited it 3,000 times. Uh, what should I do next? <laughs> and Sao Chi said, Even if you have chanted it 10,000 times, if you don't understand the meaning, you won't even know your own errors. The monk said that he actually didn't understand it and asked for instruction. Hui Nung asked the monk to recite it, 
and stopped him in chapter 2, the chapter on skillful means. Stop. The essential meaning of this sutra is the cause of the Buddha's emergence into the world. Many parables are expounded, but there is nothing more than this. This cause is the single essential matter. What is the single essential matter? It is the Buddha unfolding knowledge and entering realization. You are originally Buddha knowledge. You who have this knowledge are a Buddha. You should trust right now that the Buddha knowledge is your own mind. Then he taught with a verse. When your mind is deluded, you are turned by the Dharma blossoms. When your mind is enlightened, you turn the Dharma blossoms. If you cannot clarify the meaning after chanting the sutra at great length, you become its enemy. Thinking beyond thinking is right. Thinking about thinking, thinking about thinking is wrong. If thinking and beyond thinking do not divide the mind, you can steer the white ox cart endlessly. So that teaching is directed at our mind that thinks the way to liberate self and other and all beings is to go straight ahead. It's directed at that mind. And we all, I believe, have that mind that it's just we'll go straight ahead and get there. But Hui Nang, Dogen, the Buddha all saw that everybody has to come along. Everything has to come along. And this means turning. And this means being willing to be turned. So the commentary to be turned is the deluded mind, um, and to turn is the enlightened mind. Our ancestor Dogen takes and completely elaborates, of course, as he does. Because to be turned is also the enlightened mind, and to turn is also the deluded mind. So all these minds are in the turning of the flower, in the turning of the Dharma wheel. So when we make a gesture, when we speak out, when we take action, also when we listen, when we open our heart, these are all the dynamic action of turning the Dharma wheel. These are all action. And to be turned is equally action. So it's not in our practice about confrontation, it's about being turned. It's not about go straight ahead through this obstacle, it's about being turned and to turn and to recognize that whenever we're turned, we're turning mm -hmm. others. Whenever we're not confronting, we're turning. We're turning. Everything is moving. So this kind of understanding is really embedded in our school, our, our kind of soft but relentless school of practice. <laughs> we never give up. It looks soft, but it's like water. It's going to keep going. And uh, I want to con connect it a bit to the paramitas, which I know you've been studying. And the paramitas are really important in our school, as we know. It's the Mahayana. Um, but they're really important at the beginning. They're really important in the middle. And they're really important at the highest levels of practice. Homage to Avalokiteshvara. So I'm going to talk about her a little bit. Because the force of the Bodhisattva's commitment to the paramitas is, is a power we can access. And as you know, generosity, to cultivate the attitude of generosity, ethics, refraining from harm, patience, the ability not to be perturbed by anything, energy or diligence to find joy in what is virtuous, positive or wholesome, Meditative concentration, not to be distracted. Wisdom, the perfect discrimination of phenomena, all knowable things. And then there are four more. Skillful means, number seven. The power, power or strength, number eight. Aspiration, I'm going to talk about that a little bit, number nine. And ten, primordial wisdom. So the paramitas, paramitas are a dynamo. They also are not done straight ahead. We enter their power, and the bodhisattvas continue to practice with the power of these um, realizations. And it's paradoxical. So when we enter the realm of the paramitas, we enter one of the great paradoxes of Mahayana practice, which is we go beyond the goal of realization. The goal is realization. The paradox is we let go. 
So Avalokiteshvara appears again all the time in the sutra, the Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra, which I see on the shelf, your shelf, which is a beautiful sutra. And in that sutra, um, many bodhisattvas and Buddhas come to talk to uh, the Buddha about practice. And Avalokiteshvara shows up and uh, asks the Buddha how it is that bodhisattvas continue to advance along the path. Because bodhisattvas don't stop. They continue. Highest realization bodhisattvas are still in the dynamo of practice. And she says, he says, they say, how is it that bodhisattvas continue to advance along the path? And Buddha tells them, Avalokiteshvara, it is because of four aspects. Bodhisattvas are skilled regarding the blissful state of nirvana. Very skilled. They are able to quickly attain it. So at some level, like the seventh stage of bodhisattvahood, they become non-regressing. They're able to quickly attain the um, bliss of nirvana. Seventh stage bodhisattvas. The others can get it, but they have to work harder. <laughs> so they're able to quickly attain it. And then, third thing, having given up both that quick attainment and that peaceful state for the benefit for the benefit of sentient beings, the fourth, the fourth uh, aspect is they wish to undergo for a very long time the manifold sufferings that arise without cause and without purpose. Sorry, you can all leave now. <laughs> <laughs> the four aspects that bodhisattvas finally realize as they get up to like seven or eight is They've become skilled at attaining the blissful state of nirvana. This is crucial. Mm -hmm. It's crucial to understand the necessity, the body embodied necessity of the blissful states of nirvana. Crucial. The ability to quickly attain it is part of what is meant by practice. You know, we are actually learning about uh, how to attain it in a goalless way, and then we learn that we have to give it up that the world requires something more of us. And ultimate liberation requires something more from us. And then, for a very long time, we are willing to undergo the manifold, I'll say the bodhisattvas, because I'm not sure I'm really willing yet. No, the manifold <coughs> sufferings that arise without cause and without purpose. So deeply understanding the causation of this world shows us that difficult situations, suffering that we all experience, is caused by not just one thing, that person, it's caused by those things, and then it's caused by that. And then finally you see it's caused by everything. It's all interconnected. So one of the understandings that we have by being in a Sangha is that we need to work together to not be oh, a little bit um, would you say, distracted by that teaching. We need to encourage each other. We need to understand how it works. And we need to know that broadening our understanding of the causes doesn't reduce our ability to act. It actually enhances our ability to act. And we see that uh, the, Bodhi, the Bodhisattva was told by the Buddha that one of the things that makes this possible is that um, the force of aspiration makes this possible. So it isn't that you know you're going to get verific we will get verification proof all the time that our actions are working, but we get verification that aspiration is a powerful force. And we, you know, always in our path, we don't try to track the benefits of our actions. We let go. We just are following the precepts because we want it to spread to everyone. We're not trying to identify where it goes precisely. So this, the force of aspiration uh, comes up. I want to say a little bit more about the paramitas because the Buddha talked about it a lot to Avalokiteshvara. And Buddha told Avalokiteshvara that generosity has three aspects, giving the Dharma, giving material things, and giving fearlessness. Ethics has three aspects. Ethics that overcome non-virtue, 
ethics that engages in virtue, and ethics that engages in the welfare of sentient beings. I'm going kind of fast because I want to get to the part about aspiration. Patience has three aspects. Patience that endures injury, patience that does not consider one's own suffering at all, and patience in discerning the Dharma. That third aspect also has three aspects, not being frightened by the teachings of emptiness, not being attached to the two extremes of birth and death or <coughs> extinction, and three, being firm with respect to engaging in practice. That's part of patience. Effort has three aspects, effort that is armor, effort applied to virtue, and effort applied for the welfare of sentient beings. And each of these has three aspects. Effort that is armor has three aspects, putting on the armor of great love. Armor that is the steady force of great compassion. This is our armor. And armor that is the steady force of great effort. These are protective um, qualities for us. The fifth paramita, well, let's see, effort applied for the welfare of sentient beings also has three aspects, making unexcelled effort to develop equanimity in ethics, laboring to establish others in the meaning of the teachings, and endeavoring to practice skillful means with undaunted wisdom. And they, these are all operating dynamically because at the same time each of us is doing that, we are also being taught and receiving teachings and receiving other bodhisattvas' efforts on our behalf. So at the same time, we're in the giving mode, we're simultaneously in the receiving mode with benefits far beyond our comprehension. The great vows of all the Buddhas and ancestors. The fifth paramita of concentration has three aspects. Samadhi of blissful abiding, that is an antidote to suffering and the afflictions because it is non-conceptual and peaceful. The second is the samadhi that manifestly achieves good qualities and the samadhi that manifestly achieves the welfare of, of sentient beings. And then Avalokiteshvara asked the Buddha, um, well, how is it that the order always seems to appear to be the same? You know, the Four Noble Truths don't have to appear in the, the same order, suffering first, they could be in any order. But the, why is it that the paramitas appear in that order? And the Buddha said, It is because the six perfections serve as bases for progressively higher achievements. Through generosity, bodhisattvas do not focus exclusively on their bodies and physical resources, and thereby they attain ethics. Those who practice ethics and guard their moral practice become patient. Those who have patience initiate effort. Those who initiate effort achieve concentration, and those who achieve concentration attain wisdom that transcends the world. Then there are these four additional paramitas. So the upaya, skillful means, number seven, assists the first three perfections. So skillful means is what comes into our lives as a dynamo of action to help us in generosity, ethics, and patience. It takes tremendous skillful means in our own lives and in others' lives. So practicing the paramitas at first clearly benefits ourselves. But then practicing them, actually I should say that in reverse, practicing the paramitas can be beneficial for others and then we see that it benefits ourselves. But it could go either direction. It turns both ways. Then the next, then the eighth, of the ten paramitas is aspiration. So aspiration assists the perfection of effort. And Buddha told Avalokiteshvara that bodhisattvas may not be able to make all the effort necessary to overcome afflictions because they've been working for a few thousand years. So Buddha says, I know, you may not be able to make all the effort necessary to overcome afflictions, but this paramita of aspiration enhances effort we aspire to be more effective. We hope to relieve suffering. We aspire to heal the world. And this is the power. So aspiration is the power. Or you could say hope is the power. This is what's behind our effort. And then the ninth uh, paramita is 
the, the paramita of power that assists concentration. And Buddha says that achieving the power of reflection over the excellent practices is the perfection of power. I like it that they fearlessly <coughs> use the word power. And sometimes hearing words like this can be kind of an edge in a person, our practice and our boundless practice. And how we relate to some of these words and concepts shows us what's turning in our practice life. Can you accept having power be one of the um, really important components of practice? And then the tenth paramita is exalted wisdom, which, ex which assists the perfection of wisdom because it clearly sees the nature of reality, sees things as it is. So all these as aspects of the paramitas come into play throughout our lives, as you know. Good in the beginning, really good in the middle, and still working at the end. Bodhisattvas are still working really hard to develop their practice. So we, uh, in Houston, we had this big crisis. I'm also in Houston, Texas, and we had a big crisis a couple of months ago because we had an ice storm, which we're not used to. You guys understand ice, and we did not, and the power grid went down. And the power grid was kind of important because all the pumps, all the water comes through pumps, and so there was no power grid, so there was no water. Luckily, we have bottled water in case of hurricane emergencies, so we didn't run out of water. But it was quite interesting to be in a city of six million people, most of whom had no water. Yeah, it was really dramatic. And so, uh, for us, turning and being turned and sharing our resources and being open, really understanding that you may think we may think that we're um, separate. Houstonians, Texans often think that it's a unique little city, not connected to anything. So it was a really good proof of interconnectedness right there. Everybody then had to share water. And then, based on this, um, this these sharings, we, uh, we made a decision, and you guys have obviously made the decision, we decided to stay open. We opened back up, and then we made these rules. We wear masks, generally, and we um, require vaccinations, but we realized that doing that was a w the best way to share our practice with people, because it was so enlivening and enheartening. Caring about the benefit of others was very important to us. And now, these 17 sustainable development goals. Have any of you heard of these things? Yeah. I'm so glad. Oh, and my lovely assistant here. <laughs> I, the more I go into these goals, the more impressed I am. And the document, and I brought you guys a copy of the major document, the United Nations developed these, and it's amazingly well thought out. And one of the most important elements of it is to engage people who aren't usually engaged in the conversation in the process of developing the goals. This wasn't just a list made by people from developed countries, it was made by people in all countries. And so I want to tell you that this is the great aspiration of the Sustainable Development Goals. It has five parts. People, planet, prosperity, peace, and partnership. So some English-speaking person obviously developed that list. <laughs> <laughs> and then they were, they were developed in 2013 and then updated in 2015 with a goal of realizing great progress by 2030. And when you hear these goals, it, you can see how it turns you. But remember, it's the aspiration that has the power that allows us to do whatever we're able to do. The 17 goals are, one, end poverty in all its forms everywhere. Mm -hmm. Number two, end hunger, achieve food security, and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. Number three, ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. Number four, ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. 
Number five, achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. Number six, ensure availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. Number seven, ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. Eight, promote sustained, inclusive, and sustainable economic growth, full and productive employment, and decent work for all. Nine, build resilient infrastructure, promote inclusive and sustainable industrialization, and foster innovation. Number 10, reduce inequality within and among countries. 11, make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. 12, ensure sustainable consumption and production patterns. 13, take urgent action to combat climate change and its impacts. 14, conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas, and marine resources for sustainable development. 15, protect, restore, and promote sustainable use of terrestrial ecosystems, sustainably manage forests, combat desertification, and halt and reverse land degradation, and halt biodiversity loss. 16, promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development, provide access to justice for all, and build effective, accountable, and inclusive institutions at all levels. 17. Oh, 17. Strengthen the means of implementation and revitalize the global partnership for sustainable development. And then for each of these goals, there are targets totaling 169, as well as guidelines for follow-up and review. So it has a great checklist and discernment process. And uh, it's very well done. And it's important that this plan recognizes that there are different approaches and visions and models in each country, different styles of meeting together, and different tools available in each country. And I don't know how you feel when you, when you hear it, but it feels gigantic and amazing and maybe a bit challenging and so how is it that the SDGs are different from what we are already doing and the answer is uh, especially for those of us who already live like this aware of nature and close to it they're not that different from our local concerns it's just that our minds especially in such privileged circumstances the United States and Japan um, our minds need to see the interconnectedness so that everything we do is linked to this process. And the Soto Zen School is especially interested in number five this year, protecting uh, women and girls and bringing equality to women and girls. And this, um, this year also is, in, as part of the plan, the decade of ocean science. This is the decade of the ocean. So we want to, yes, leaving no one behind. So this, uh, the United Nations is um, created the first world ocean assessment, found that much of the ocean is now seriously degraded. As the world population will reach an estimated 9 billion people by 2050, impacts on the ocean associated with hum human activities will increase. Action can only be effective if it is based on sound knowledge informed by science. So there is an increasing need to find scientific solutions that allow us to understand the changes taking place in our ocean and to reverse its declining impact. And as I was giving that part of the program in Texas, one of the women from New Orleans, from the New Orleans Sangha, is a climate is an ocean climate scientist and she said oh by the way that's what I'm doing <laughs> it was so nice to feel that oh, somebody is already doing that of course many people are but she's a practitioner and we know we need to promote it through science but we also need to use our practice to really help people understand the karmic links of this whole process and help people withstand the the truth of what we what we have to face in these years. So that's part of our practice. We're able to um, move in this world of causeless sufferings and and agony and and support each other and learn how to help other people support each other. 
So I think it's pretty obvious what the SDGs have to do with Soto Zen Buddhism and why the whole Soto school is really, really getting behind it. Um, I think it's just pretty obvious, but you know, the Buddha treasure gives us the living example of an active Buddha who started teaching from the moment of awakening. And the Buddha, the practices of the Buddha are actually, Buddhism is known as a, as a religion of action because of the teachings of the meaning of action or karma. But Buddhism is all about action. So once we kind of step back and understand that everything we do has an impact, sometimes it kind of slows us down because we realize the power of our actions. But eventually, it should turn us back into the world because we do understand the power of our actions. And so then we start turning the Dharma flower again with our actions. And, I, you know, one of the major benefits that we have is the Sangha treasure. So when we, as, as Sangha members, in, in, uh, encourage each other and support each other and help each other when we get tired out, uh, then we extend that to recognize all beings are in our Sangha. And we gradually use skillful means to help other people relax and refresh, to go back out into the world. So our strength as a Sangha is one of the most amazing powers that we have. So please don't forget that because the, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have been vowing to help all Sanghas for all this time. And if we listen very closely, I love your sign out there that says listen. So listen to the sounds of the Bodhisattvas sending their support to us all the time in the leaves and the trees and that water that Tia and I were walking over listening to the bubbling water. Those are the voices of the Bodhisattvas trying to help us do this work together. I do want to say this, um, because this leaving no one behind is a really important part of our effort, so I don't want to leave that out, um, because the UN effort it was so thoughtful about that, not just listening to the voices who are comfortable speaking out and have a lot of opinions, but it reached out to everyone, especially those whose choices are limited by five important factors, living in extreme poverty, being subject to discrimination, living in geographical locations that are vulnerable, living under ineffective or unjust governance, and five, living in the immediate path of climate change. So those voices were also brought into these documents, and that's why you probably heard some of those voices in the list of 17. We want climate justice, we want financial justice, we want to, we want uh, the leveling of the uneven playing field. So it's not going to be comfortable, it's not going to be um, easy all the time, but we have each other and we have the encouragement to practice together amid the fierce flames like that great painting. Has, has the Sangha seen that great painting of Avalokiteshvara in, in the Hojo? There's a big painting of Avalokiteshvara and there's a glow of fire around her which is what we're also practicing with. So thank you very much. And now Taiga is going to tell us all about... <laughs> so please, sit relax. My legs are shaking, so... <laughs> are they asleep? Yeah. See, advanced bodhisattvas, their feet go to sleep. <laughs> wake up, wake up. You know, ladies, wake up. Okay. Yes, actually, I'm talking about... Uh, my talk is so short, so don't worry about that. And... Actually, I'm talking about the 100th anniversary of Soto Zen in North America. Next year, 2022, is the Soto Zen North America's 100th anniversary year. And first temple of the Soto Zen temple in United States, no, 
United States is founded in Los Angeles in 1922. And Reverend Hosen Isobe, he was the former Hawaii's director of Soto Zen. And at that time, Hawaii was not United States. So we, we are not counting the Hawaii's temple is not North American temple. <laughs> and he, after he direct, he finished director of Hawaii, he moved into the Los Angeles and he found the Soto Zen temple called Zen Shuji in Japan town, 1922. Then after that, he Move into the Sokoji, and he found so. Uh, he moved into the San Francisco, and he found Sokoji in 1928. But anyway, so we we counted the 1922 when the Zen Shuji was founded is the first year of the Soto Zen in North America. Then after that we had the World War II. In that time, the Zen Shuji in Los Angeles and Sokoji in San Francisco was taken away from. Zen Shuji was taken from the government, and Sokoji was taken by the Jewish community. It was Jewish, the synagogue bought it to protect it. Yeah, then. Uh, all the Japanese immigrants go back to Japan, or they captured in a camp. But still, they collecting the money in a camp, and they keep sending to the government to keep their temples. Then, after finishing the World War Two, they they released and they bought back the temples. Then, so the World War Two finishing finish at 1940. Two. Five, six. Forty-six. Five. Five. 45. Yeah, forty-five. Then they bought back together and they used the temple as as a temple and community hall. So the priest teach the Japanese to the kids and also teach the choreographies and like so community for community hall for the Japanese the society. And Beginning, it's uh, 1967, I think, seven or eight, the new North America Soto's director was came. His name is Lady Yamada. He is, after finishing the director of North America, he go back to Japan and he became the abbot of AH. That means the the head priest of Soto Zen in Japan. But before, before he was in uh, Los Angeles. And he asked to the, uh, do these two temples, Zen Shuji and Sokoji in San Francisco, to have the Zazen classes to the local people. At up to that point, the Japanese temples is only for Japanese immigrants, and they have yes, they have dozen classes also to do the their members is Japanese immigrants. But the lady Yamada Zenji asked to these two temples to open the dozen to the locals, local people. Then that was 1990. Uh, 1969. So in that time, in, at Sokoji, the abbot is a Shun, Shunryu Suzuki. And Zen Shuji was the, uh, the Yama, Reverend Yamashita. He, he, was, he was the uh, abbot of Zen Shuji at that time. But the, some monks from Japan helped to the Zen Shuji. And one of them, there is, he, his name is uh, Hakuyu Maizumi. Maizumi? Yeah. 
He came as an assistant. Yeah, assistant as a, so the Reverend Yamashita asked him to because he mm-hmm. he could speak English a little bit. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. and also Suzuki Roshia can speak could speak English. Mm-hmm. So they start to start the Zazen classes to for the local people. Mm-hmm. Then uh, I think they have every Sunday, I think in at the first time. Mm-hmm. But you know the young local people coming to sit and it's getting bigger, bigger, bigger. So as I told as I told you, you know the Japanese immigrant, they keep the temples for the long time, even under the situation of the World War Two. And in that when they when the two abbot starting to uh, when that two priests starting to the Zazen classes to local people and local people coming come come mm-hmm. and getting getting increase. Mm-hmm. So the original Japanese members is complained about that. Because the temples because they, they keep the temples and their community hall and you know and also at that time the many young people was hippies. <laughs> so they do the cleaning as as order from the Suzuki Roshi or Maizumi Roshi, they they clean cleaning the temples mm-hmm. ground and doing that. But still, they looks like not clean. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry for say, saying that. But that, but that is I had from the, uh, Jap, the Japanese the oh, original wow. yeah, and actually they the Japanese the members didn't doesn't hate or kind of that thing but you know the temple is for them is like more more clean mm-hmm. and uh, every Sunday they change they they dress up the Japanese immigrants dress mm-hmm. up to mm-hmm. going to the temples right and the kind of situation there was so the original members the complain about that mm-hmm. and Suzuki Roshi and also they decided to make another place mm-hmm. to sit. Mm-hmm. And also they have to care of the Japanese temple also. So Suzuki Roshi decided to find find place in the Page Street. It's like a 10 minute walk. And also the Maizumi Roshi found it place in the Korean town. It's like a five, ten minute by car from the Zenshu. But still it's near. So at that point, we call Zen centers. The Zen centers is founded at mm-hmm. that point. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, the Japanese temples have Japanese temples history. And on the other side, the Zen centers mm-hmm. have the development, development. And yeah, so on, there's many, many history with, within these like kind of 50 years and Suzuki Roshi asked to Japan to send someone, some priest to help him because they, he has two places. Mm-hmm. The Zenshuji is okay because Zenshuji there's already there's some, some priest so Maizumi Roshi can stay. To the I don't, was my, Maizumi Roshi wasn't Jushoku though, right? No. No. Suzuki Roshi was abbot of Sokoji, so he has to he has to more help. Yeah. So there's uh, some priests com- coming from Japan, and one of them called the Katagiri Roshi, dining Katagiri, mm-hmm. and another one called Kobun Chino. And there's more, more, there's more, but the, more, most of them, they go back to Japan. But these two monks, they stay. And Katagiri Roshi, yeah, he found his own place in Central America. Mm-hmm. Then, now if you go into the Hokyoji in Minnesota, you can see that monastery. And the other Kobun Chinon, he is the uh, many people say that he's like a crowd. 
you know, he's not like a big speaker. He's not, you know, for, for example, one, one day the Japanese priests have a conference, and end of the conference, they found it. There's Kogun. You know, in a, in a, in a, in the conference, no one knows it. <laughs> but uh, and also, everybody doesn't know where he is. You know, so every time they we have the conference, we 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 have to find him where he is. Find <laughs> that people in the crowd. But only one people catch the crowd. That is Steve Jobs. Yeah. And why? How? How they? How they? How? Why? He called him because he the Kobunshino have no address. So in the list for we when we have. We have, when we have a meeting, when we have some event, we call, we call the Japanese priest, but he never had the address. So uh, he feel, I feel he felt he has to have address. Then he used address, the Steve Jobs house <laughs> in, uh, in the early 90s. Yeah, I, so maybe I, I, I can imagine the Kobunchino never lived there. Yeah, he stayed like two or three days a month, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and kind of that story is, was there. But I won't say. <laughs> Next year, 2022, is the 100th anniversary. And this time, it doesn't matter about the Japanese immigrants or Zen centers or local priests. It doesn't matter about your lineages. It's uh, all our lineage is the uh, Shakyamuni Buddha and uh, Dogen Zen, GSK Zen lineage. That is Soto Zen. And under this lineage, we have to have a big celebration together. So <coughs> I'm calling this. That I don't. We don't care about the, anything, but at least you, if you are sort of them, let's get together and do event, do celebration. And one celebration is, as I told, the 100th anniversary sort of them means 100th anniversary, anniversary of Zen Shushi. So there's five days Ojukai, Percept. Precept receiving pre, pre, yeah, ceremony. The precept. Yeah, receive the precept. It takes five days, but it's from 16th to 20th of November, next year. Every, everybody can come. Everybody can attend. And I get the information of the call center. So please save the date for five days. And another event I'm, I'm planning is the one day celebration event and I wanted to do in New York. It's a symposium and also the so these two events now actually the percept, uh, perception ceremony is going on and another thing is I'm making the report and the note and the plan now. So I I hope we have we can do in so next year, 2022, please be together and please help and celebrate together. Thank you. Thank I want to add that um, yeah. a couple years ago we had a meeting. It actually took place in California, no, in Nevada. We had a meeting and Sokoji members and Zenshuji members and some people from Long Beach came. They have a conference every year and we made a presentation about uh, Zen centers. So I had picture uh, Brooklyn Zen Center then in the city was in it, and I we showed pictures of all the different Zen centers all over the United States, and the Sokoji members and the Zen Shuji members were amazed mm -hmm. because, like 
we said, this is what started from you. This started from you. This started from Zenshuji and Sokoji. Suzuki Roshi came because of Sokoji. And look what's grown out of what you came and established. And they were amazed. Mm -hmm. They had no idea that there were Zen centers in Pittsburgh and Brooklyn and everywhere. It's beautiful. I should show you guys the slideshow. And so they were really touched. And in a way, it's like, let's go show Zenshuji how happy we are that mm -hmm. they came. And then in a few years, it's Sokoji's uh, turn. But this, I think, will be a bigger one. It's really going to be a big celebration. So I really hope you all come. In Los Angeles next week. It'll be at in Los Angeles temple. at that temple. And then the Jukaie, I'm, I'm sure you'll have questions about that because it's like, why receive the precepts again? But this is a very, it's like the most important ceremony for people to receive the precepts and then to do it again together in this very, very formal ceremony. You get up on the mountain, it's kind of like a mountain seat ceremony mm -hmm. to receive the precepts from a, a great teacher. It'll be a kiburashi, right? Yes. In the Japanese. Huh. And so you get another kachimyaku. But it's not considered like replacing your teacher. It's just receiving the precepts from the Buddha in this ceremony. So I hope you all consider coming. That's part of our, our reason for being here. <laughs> <laughs> but this, uh, this reconnection with, with uh, our Japanese roots is really important. Honoring our roots. Thank you. Any questions? Do you need an invitation, or how does that work? Do you, do you just show up, or how does that work? The Jukai? Yeah. Yes, actually, we starting to the the accommodation, no accommodation. The registration. We start the registration oh. from November. So website. Yeah, in this. Yeah. 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 So we send you the email. But the most of the details I gave you, oh. the, I made the, we made the flyer. We have it downstairs. Okay. Yeah. So it's, there's uh, the schedule and meaning of the ceremonies. And mm -hmm. so, so the registration is starting from November. Very exciting. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. Okay, can I, I'm just make a comment that came up for me. Um, when you were reading the sustainable goals, the thought, the feeling that kept coming up is, um, they feel really impossible, mm -hmm. and they're so aspirational. Mm -hmm. Like just each, each vow was resonating in my heart, and I never made that connection before. You know, with this ecological crisis, it really is very hard to have any hope. Mm -hmm. But when I heard them, which were, there just doesn't seem to me in my own body as impossible as the Bodhisattva vows, I know what it feels like to meet an impossible vow. And so something about the, that just started to connect. And so it offered me a lot of possibility in my own body to meet it that way because I know I've trained to meet those, to be able to live with those impossible vows. But I just feel... Um, it feels so beautiful to have them articulated, you know, and so broadly and yet so specifically about um, the harm in the world and what needs to be addressed. And um, also how it happens by these kinds of meetings, mm -hmm. you know, that to spread that. So I appreciate you, the idea of you going around the country and just keep, um, we keep having conversations with Buddhist communities about meeting a meeting that was suffering. So I feel very appreciative. Thank you so much. And part of what we want to do is to honor what you're already doing and tell you that you're not alone. All these communities are thinking about the, the water that we use and the energy that we use and you know, feeling that we, we have to share it with each other and everyone. So thank you. Mm -hmm. And our vow. I, there is a little story. Can I read you this little story about um, one of the um, people who had heard these goals was a young Brazilian guy. And this is from the document, Leave No One Behind. And he, he wrote in to say, 
once I saw in the newspaper a story that said that the dirtiest community of Rio de Janeiro was mine. Mm -hmm. yes. And that was when I dropped everything and went to work with recycling. I faced all kinds of difficulties. People criticized me and drug dealers wanted my land. I still continued and gathered all cans, bottles, plastic bags, and cooking oil. That's his story. And the comment was, history is made by those who move on. If Oh, he said this. If I can change a person, I can also change the world. So that's what people do when we realize everybody's doing a little bit. And if everybody turns that way, yeah, it really is an impossible vow, but we have to do it. So, and, you know, all of us in our communities can find other things to do, too, other way, ways to address the issues that we have to address. And social justice is one of the biggest ones, but it includes, and it includes, all environmental issues. That's what it's about. So, you're not alone. Um, I actually feel quite emotional, quite moved by this talk. Um, in particular for me, uh, Taiga Sensei, your history uh, that you offered and both of your invitation to um, meet and be part of this wider Sotozen community. Um, we have a lot of conversations here about that history that you talked about. And um, the way it's mostly presented to us has been focused on the split between Zen centers and heritage communities. And it's, there's a lot of pain, I think, in that history. Um, so to hear uh, this fact that I never knew that the abbot of AKG actually encouraged Zen Shuji and Sokoji to invite people, and that's something I'd never heard before. And that does a lot to me to kind of retell this history, where it's not just a split, it's actually, um, there's so much potential for connection and, um, Fundamentally, um, you know, this is a history of spreading the Dharma to these communities. Um, and so, you know, I'm not of Japanese descent, but I'm Asian American, and I've always been, I grew up in um, going to Little Tokyo all the time. Okay. So um, just to like hear this history and to imagine us all coming together um, for this 100th anniversary just feels absolutely Thank you. And when we go to Sokoji, and we're going to move our office back into Sokoji in San Francisco, um, and uh, when we do go there, they're so happy, you know. And me, as a person who didn't practice in a heritage temple, um, they're so happy. And they they say, well, "You should come more. Why why don't you guys come more?" So they're equally ready for this reconnection. And I don't think that they, nobody knew when Suzuki Roshi went over and started having a sitting group at the, at the synagogue, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody thought that that was going to be a split. It just sort of gradually time took it that way. So I think everybody wants it to be more of a, a unified practice together. I'm, I, in fact, I know everyone does. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. all so much for your time. Another question? Do you mind? No. You had said that there was an emphasis this year on leaving, um, um, supporting women and children and mm -hmm. also for the, um, for the oceans. Mm -hmm. um, is there something coming out of um, Soto Shu or out of this that is, that is a, a kind of specific request for communities around those two particular emphases, you know, when something gets emphasized. So I was just curious if there was something you could pass on about uh, what that would mean mm -hmm. from a, from the broadest to now this, the specificity of it for us to take up. In our communities, we're requested to recognize uh, the efforts of women and girls and to make educational opportunities more available for women and for girls. So. Would you guys try to do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's more.
more of a challenge for some groups than others. But I think that one of the, I don't know, maybe Tagasan needs to cover his ears for this part, but I think that one of the, uh, 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 what would you call it, res res reciprocal benefits that this practice, in, and especially in the West, has sent back into Japan is this possibility of women and men practicing together as equals. That, uh, you know, that was really shocking at the beginning. Some, te yeah. some temples were able to do that, but um, the women, generally, if they were practicing in a mixed group, the women were always at a, had to take the lower position. And now they've seen, doesn't, that's not necessary. Yes, for example, <laughs> <laughs> from 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 North North America, and there's also Japanese Soto Soto shoe Soto Zen in Japan headquarters called Soto shoe. We call them because they are so they they also the too much active, uh, so so much activities with the so SDGs they do, but uh, for example, the number goal number five, gender equality. Yeah, this is one one of the one of the things the Soto Shu Soto Zen in Japan cannot. Uh, he they started, but basically in Japan. The priest, well, priest, nuns, can I say nun? Sure. Yeah, nun in the Soto Zen is 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. Oh, 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%. 3%.
that's hopeful in a way that I've not ever experienced in so many places. So I'm, I'm grateful that you're taking part in this and, and passing this around to our Soto communities. It's so important to shift the culture and shift the way we, our hearts meet the world. So thank thank you. you. Thank you for saying that. And I will leave this with you guys and you can look at it. It's easily available on the web, but it's just, as you say, and I think it's profoundly influenced by the fact that so many voices are in it. Mm -hmm. And because you hear these parts, it's like, this is such a good idea. It's probably come from a voice that we haven't heard from yet. So, beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Anything else? Thank you guys so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.